Leadership is the art of giving people a platform for spreading ideas that work. Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathram. Welcome back to the DC Local Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Nathram. If it's your first time checking us out, we really appreciate you being here. Remember to subscribe wherever you're listening and on Instagram at DC Local Leaders and come find me on LinkedIn. I don't want you to miss out on any of our Monday mindsets and new episodes with impactful examples of leadership and mindset. To make it easy, we're going to drop some links below. We want to continue to create value and share these messages of shifting our mindset, achieving our goals, and being a mentor for others to do the same. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, please remember to share it with a friend. It'll really help us spread the word. We're also actively seeking partnerships and sponsorships to continue our mission, sharing examples that we can accomplish anything that we work towards with the right mindset and the right mentorship. If you or your company would like to partner with us, please use the links below to connect. Today's episode features Angie Heisey, Corporate Vice President of Microsoft Defense and Intelligence. I'm so grateful that we had a chance to sit down and chat with Angie. She's so easy to talk to. I can only imagine that the people on her team really appreciate having her as a leader and as a mentor. She talks a lot about the lessons she's learned by watching her parents shift their career at a very young age. And she was also young and impressionable at that time. And watching them going from being a farmer to then being an accountant and a teacher and the resilience and durability that comes along with making those choices and the reason why they made those choices. She also gives us two specific examples of how she was mentored and they didn't necessarily care about her feelings, but they did care about the impact they were making on her as an individual. And she carries that with her in everything she does. So we have a great conversation. She also talks about why she specifically wakes up at 520 every morning. So listen in till the end because you won't want to miss it. So we're incredibly grateful that we had a chance to sit down with her before she starts to travel. She heads global efforts at Microsoft, and that does require a lot of international travel. So we were able to catch her before she leaves for London. And let's get into the episode. Angie Heisey, thank you so much for being here, DC Local Leaders. We're here in your office here with Microsoft. I'm so excited to talk to you and thank you for having me. Yeah. You know, I'm glad we got connected. We know some common people in the industry and your name's come up more than once and they said you got to have her on. So I'm glad you're here. Yeah, me too. I'm looking forward to having our conversation. Yeah. We were talking earlier. So you're, you're in Microsoft you're the head of defense, but it's a global effort. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So in Microsoft, I am the corporate vice president for defense and intelligence industry. So I have responsibility for setting the strategy and bringing together the go-to-market and engineering products uh, across the globe for our defense and intelligence customers. Do you get to travel a lot with this, with what you're doing? Well, with COVID, I haven't traveled as much as I would normally, but I am getting ready to go on a two-week trip here in in a week. Yeah. Somewhere um, fun. Can yeah, you tell us? actually. Yeah. So I have a, a great opportunity. I'm going to London, Amsterdam, and then Rome and have some speaking engagements and meeting with customers and meeting with my team and really looking forward to it. And we're looking forward to getting to some sense of normalcy relative to business travel. How many people are within your team altogether across the globe? So I have 
I have a small team that directly report to me, right? Microsoft is a large matrix organization. And so we have several thousand people across the globe that are supporting defense and intelligence customers. Yeah. Is this one of the largest responsibilities you've had in your career so far? It it definitely is. And it's a it's a different set of responsibilities and one of the reasons why I was really drawn to not only the role, but to Microsoft in that I've previously worked for companies that are much more hierarchical and this this ability to work in a matrix organization and to be able to orchestrate impact was really compelling for me. You've had this career that's been centered around government contracting and defense specifically. Well, I guess you've done some civil stuff in the past. Mm -hmm. Did you know that this is what you wanted to do when you set out or did you just find yourself through a series of events being here? So I knew very early on that I wanted to do something with technology, like probably about age nine. And then later on in my career, or or actually later on in my life, but early on in my career, I was doing internships and was was actually interning for Scott Air Force Base in Illinois and building out capabilities for mission critical systems and really found purpose with that. And then I ended up making the strange decision to go and do some consulting at a very large beer company and realizing that I didn't get the same sense of purpose and mission working for a company like that and and decided that I needed to go back to the defense industry. So what you, it, it sounds like you don't want to tell us the name of the, the beer company, but you know I'm going to ask because you're smiling right at me. You guys can't see us. No, but, yeah. So it was, I went to work um, as a consultant through a small business for Anheuser-Busch. And yeah. I think I was a senior in college. And so I had, had done this great internship with Scott Air Force Base and then got a phenomenal offer to go work this consulting gig in Anheuser-Busch and went and took it. And, you know, I kind of joked, but I knew very early on when I started there that there was the company valued different things than what I necessarily valued. And I give the example that I, I actually, we worked, the software engineers worked in the old horse stables. So they had renovated the Clydesdale <laughs> stables. Were you outside? No, no, no. They were nice stables. Oh, okay. They're Clydesdales. Oh, right? they were like Anheuser a Bush, right? Okay. So the ones that kicked well. the field goal on yeah, the, right, for the Super right. Bowl? Yeah. And they had built new stables for the horses. And so they had renovated the stables for the software engineering group that I worked with. And so that should have been pretty telling. But it was it was a great learning experience because what I learned is different companies have different things that they value and different ways you can move up, right? Yeah. And in Anheuser-Busch, it was either you're a brewmaster or you're in marketing. That's how you moved up. And so when you were a software engineer, you were overhead. And so I was a, on a team of five. I had just graduated college and I had seen 10 people fired on my team. And I, by the time I decided to leave there, which was only two years later, yeah. I was running the operations for their supply chain system. And so, and I had just graduated from college. And so it was a, it was an eye-opening experience and I learned a ton, 
But I also learned that I really needed to ensure that I worked for a company where my career aspirations would be valued as well as my contributions and my engineering skills, my computer science skills would be a path to be able to move up in the corporation. How old were you? At the time? Yeah. I was 22. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of insight. I mean, did you did you know that then really or can you reflect on that now and have the vocabulary to describe what you were experiencing? I knew some of it then, but certainly is something I've been reflecting over yeah. over my career, but I I ended up going straight from there to Lockheed Martin. Yeah. So then and then you got into this this sort of government contracting defense role and that led you to well doing more civil stuff at, at Lighthouse. So you're one of those people that started as a technologist and found yourself into more of a leadership soft skill role. Not not that you don't I'm sure you use your technical skills every day. I don't want to make you feel like it wasn't worth it. But but you know, you you were able to make that transition and I think that's hard for some people. I think learning the skill sets to do that can be sometimes difficult. How did you do that along the way? I knew I wanted a challenge. I knew I wanted a lot of responsibility. And so I loved I loved doing software development. I started at Lockheed doing Java development and I absolutely loved it. But I also realized very quickly because I was part of a small team out at Skydive Force Base and had the opportunity when executives would come out, I was always selected to do the briefings or I would do the briefings for the three and four star generals at the base. And I How also were you at this point. I was 23, 24. Yeah, was that intimidating at all? No, for me, it was exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it. Did you have mentors and coaches around you? Because I, I feel like that conversation Presenting that information to people of that that status within our military could be intimidating for anyone, but especially a 23-year-old person. Yeah, I, w- I would say I've been blessed throughout my whole life, right, to have fantastic people around me to be able to guide and coach me and 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 also give me enough room to make mistakes and stumble yeah. and fall, right? But they're always there to yeah. catch me. And so I... I had this, quite honestly, a huge adrenaline rush whenever I was able to, you know, really, really get in front of people and talk about the tremendous progress that our team was making. And, and it was fortunate because I ended up catching the eye of several of the Lockheed Martin executives throughout that process. Did they become your mentors because they started paying attention to you or how did you, I guess I kind of cut you off because I was like, oh my God, how did you do this? What are the replicable steps that someone else can take. So I'm not sure that it's necessarily replicable what I did, to be honest, because I, but there's some, some takeaways and lessons I think people could absolutely learn from. So I happened to be leading a team of software developers and I was probably... 24 25 at that time right i was working for lockheed i had moved my had moved up to become a technical lead but i realized that the other four gentlemen that were running technical teams on the same level that i was they were two levels higher so i went to my i went to my manager at the time and i said that you know kind of made my case and said look i don't understand right why i'm two levels lower than my peers and I have the same amount of responsibility and I would like for you to do something about it. And he said he understood. He would look into it and he knew where I was coming from. 
And so about two weeks later, he got back to me and I'll never forget sitting in his office because he told me he had looked into it. And while he agreed with me, he wasn't willing to go fight for me. And if he wouldn't have said those words, everything probably would have been different. And he may have even said fight for it, right? Like the promotion. But all I heard was fight for me. Right. And I, I remember shutting my notebook and telling him, thank him very much. And that I would be looking for new employment. You and, said that when you yeah, in the room, of course. And I walked out and then I got a job. I gave my notice at Lockheed about three hours after I gave my notice. I got a call from a Lockheed Martin president in Virginia. I was in Illinois working at Skydiver for space at the time. And he said, I think you're making a mistake. And he was calling from vacation, right? And so I was a little taken aback because I didn't expect that, right? I wasn't quitting to get attention. I was quitting because I needed to work for someone else. Right. And he told me he wanted me to come work, come to um, DC and work for him for a year and that he would show me a different type of company. And he gave me 24 hours to make a decision. And I, I, I wasn't sure, to be honest, what I was going to do because I had made a commitment to another company and I, I believed strongly you make commitments, you do not break them. But the good thing was it was, it was actually a good friend of mine, a good gentleman that I'm um, still friends with. He was like, who had made me the offer of the other company. He's like, you got to go do this. This will change your career. And it did. How old were you at, at this point? Oh, let me think. That was in two, it was in 2000. So I had graduated college in 96. So I was maybe 26. So your mid twenties, were you, was it just you? Were you single at the time? Were you married? Was there anyone else involved in this? Yeah. Yeah. So actually that's probably a little funny story. I was married. My husband um, actually worked at the Lockheed Martin office with me. He was a consultant there and I walked down to his office and I said, I just got an offer to move to DC for a year and go do this job. And he was immediate, you gotta go, you gotta go do that. And I was like, eh, I don't know, I don't know. So we went home and talked about it. I called my dad, right? And he said, yes, you gotta go do this. Everybody was telling me yes. And I was like, I don't think so. And so I, t- that next morning, I told my husband before he left for work that I was gonna say no. And so then, I had a fantastic leader that I had previously worked for call me and she's like, hey, I heard you just got this offer. You got to do it. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. And, and she said to me, she's like, because I, I grew up on a farm in Illinois. I had never left Illinois. Yeah. And she's like, you can never make a career decision based on fear. And that's what you're doing right now. Don't do it. And I was like, you're absolutely right. Were, were you, were you more afraid of the responsibility? So I want to, what was the job one? Cause I mean, if, mm-hmm. you know, were they asking you to build a spaceship or something? Everyone's <laughs> like, you gotta go do this. But you know, were you more afraid of not being able to fulfill the responsibility of the job or just moving? Everything, everything scared me about it. Right. So I was afraid the fact that I was gonna have to be away from my husband for a year. I was afraid of living outside of Illinois as as silly as it sounds to me now, but that's where your family network is. That's where everybody, you know, yes, everybody. Right. I was scared about the job. I was going to be working. It was a, it was a rotational assignment as a, what they call technical assistant, right. In Lockheed. 
I was afraid I wasn't prepared. I was afraid that I would fail, yeah. right? There was so many things scared me about it. And so, but when she said that to me, I just, I re- was like, you're right. And I called the, I called the Lockheed Martin president and said I accepted the job. And then a couple hours later, I told my husband I had accepted. What did you do with that fear? How did you process that to get from consumed by all this fear? And now I'm just going to take this action. I think when she said those words to me, I, I was never one and have never been one to step down from a challenge, right? I'm a very competitive person. So you're like, I'll show you. I was like, yeah, that's not me. That's not how I define myself. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I, I decided to make the jump and it was a matter of quite honestly, it was a matter of minutes right on that phone call with her and I'll forever be grateful for her to call me mm-hmm. and and because she kind of called me out right everybody else was doing it from an encouraging standpoint right and she was she called me out and said you know what are you doing right? yeah. you think you're hot you know you think you can do this right right yeah there's people killing Go for this it. job and you're just sitting here yeah like exactly stay in Illinois you gotta throw it in your lap get it take yeah. it make something of it. And I, I also had a little bit of guilt because I didn't quit. I didn't give my notice to get this position. And right. I gave my notice to go do something different. And I, so there was guilt that I hadn't really earned it. Did you feel undeserving in a way or they're only doing this because I threatened to leave, not because they think I'm good enough to have it. Yes. Yes. Even though, right. He told me, he's like, you're on the talent list. And in, in hindsight, they wouldn't have called me if they if I hadn't been on their talent list, right? If they hadn't had plans to want me to rotate around and right. that type of thing. They would have just let you go. They would have let me go. At the time, though, I didn't necessarily have an appreciation for that. Has that experience changed the way that you... What I hear you saying is that this frothy emotional appeal that some people were giving you wasn't actually what you needed. What you needed was someone who wasn't being mean to you, but she was just being very honest without worrying about your feelings. Right. Has that changed the way that you mentor others or what did you learn from that experience in terms of how to mentor others? A hundred percent. I, I think having a conversation with people about what's holding them back, right. An honest conversation about why they're either choosing to do something or not choosing to do something is, is something i almost probably every mentoring conversation I have, right? Yeah. And, you know, it opened a door for me that I didn't know was even a possibility before. And so I have a lot of dialogues with my mentees on how do you assess all the potential opportunities in front of you, right? And how do you do that homework and explore maybe the other 20% that you had no idea even existed. And I think that's really important to be deliberate about your career moves and be deliberate about the jobs you take, be deliberate about who you work for, about the teams that you choose, the companies you choose, not just let it happen. Well, what do you encourage them to do in order to find out that 20%? Network, right? Understand what they're really passionate about. Understand what are all the possibilities having discussions with people where whether it's me sharing them 
with you know my career path or other people that they see and they said I'd love to have that job right how can you how can you go get that how can you go have a conversation to talk about what was their journey right what was the options that they had what was the job like so, what do they want you to do to be honest the job was to learn as crazy as it sounds that, right it, my job i mean i had the medial things of preparing presentations and PowerPoint slides and, you know, Excel, right? All that sort of stuff. But it was preparing me to do something different. That's really what it was about. So, you know, I ask everyone that, that I talk to about this and it doesn't have, you don't have to say that it is. uh, But I asked them about a jumping off point or pivotal moments. The jumping off point is a little bit different that's a moment in time where you're unsure of what to do, but you know, you can't keep doing what you're doing. You're just unsure of what to do next. And I don't want to just say that that was a jumping off point for you. Maybe you've had others, but do you think that you'd be where you are now without taking that position or, or doing that? A hundred percent. No. Yeah. So it's kind of, that's what those people knew about that position that you didn't know at the time that you didn't have the perception to even say or think because you learned how to do what you're doing now there that you wouldn't have otherwise got, right? Yeah. I, so he, you know, the president there at the time, he promoted me three times a year, right? And then he ended up sending me back to the same office I came from. And so all of a sudden, the people that I had been previously working for, I was now their boss. Mm. And so I skipped the, if you will, kind of like the first line management and, and went and ran operations for a mission critical system. And it, com- it completely changed the path of my career, how I saw it and threw me right straight from deep technical to leadership in a very short time period. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that was, it was jarring for many reasons and I had to learn, I had to learn fast, right? It was yeah. a little bit like throwing you in the deep end of the pool. Did, did that other supervisor that didn't want to fight for it ever tell you why? Why are you laughing? I'm laughing because he ended up working for me a few years yeah. after that. But Did he ever tell you why though? What was it about what you were asking him to do that he didn't want to do? Or what, was there a reason? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's any company, right? There's... Uh, a time, limited time or a limited set of promotions, right? They allocate so much. And some leaders, I'll say, will do it if it's easier to do, right? Sometimes it is hard. Convenience. Yeah. And it is really, really hard to go for what we used to call an out of cycle, right? An out of cycle promotion. And I'm sure he had a lot of people working for him, right? He had a lot of other things. And the idea of to go fight for an auto cycle promotion, it just, it wasn't something he had the energy to go do. Mm. Was he older in his career? You know, he was probably mid, mid career. And, and I'll be honest, he probably gave me the, one of the best gifts of my career because one, he was honest with me, right? If he wouldn't have said he wasn't willing to go fight for it, I, I wouldn't have get my notice. Yeah. I would have not have had the opportunity right, to right, right. right. There's so many things that wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Uh, and, and I recognized our, 
you know, during that time period. And, and in hindsight is that was a limitation of him, not me. Yeah. That said more about him than it did about it did. you. But at the time, did you know that? I did. You did. I did. Did you, where'd you get that message from? How did you know that? Cause I feel like at that age. Yeah. I will say I've always been now, pretty confident. Yeah. Right. I'm definitely for my, my parents, my family. Were you right? that way? Yeah, absolutely. What were you, what'd your parents do? Did you come from a technical household? No, I was raised on a farm. And so my, my dad was a farmer for a while. And then both my parents I saw when I was in elementary school decided to go, they were high school graduates, but they decided to go get uh, college degrees. And so my mom became a teacher and then my dad became an accountant and we left the farm when I was maybe 15. He went, so your dad went from being a farmer to an accountant. Yes. And, and your mom became a teacher after, but how, you watched them change their career entirely. Completely. It changed our whole household. It changed all our lives. Do you remember how old they were? Oh gosh. They were probably, they were probably in their late twenties. They had me when they were really young. How old were you at this time? So I was in elementary school. Yeah. I remember my sister and I sitting in the back of the classroom with my, with my dad, you know, in class and we'd be back there doing coloring and doing paperwork and stuff because they were both in school. And so somebody had to take us. How old is your sister? She's two years younger than me. And, and do you remember what were the conversations they were having? What, did, what wore off on you? during that time that you carry with you now that really helps you do what you're doing. I'm trying to get an idea because one, you know, your dad's a farmer. So he's, that, that says a lot. Farmers think a certain way in terms of their crops and what has to happen at certain times and doing and consistency, right? Doing small amounts of work in a consistent manner to, to reap what you sow. Yeah. Right. And that's teaching you something. And then he goes and, and he becomes an accountant. But the process of changing your career entirely to make that happen. Right. And then your mom's a teacher. So that comes, you know, she's in a classroom full of other students, right? Kids. And I'm sure you learn things from her too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. My, my, my parents are fantastic. So a couple things. One, it was, it was in the eighties, right? When they were, when my my dad and my grandfather were farming and there was a lot of droughts in they Southern Illinois. So we had, we had hogs for a while. We usually grew corn, sorghum, beans. And so we had, you know, sold corn out of the back of our pickup truck in the summer and the, you know, so every night we'd go pick sweet corn. I've picked way more sweet corn than any yeah. person should. Yes. Yes. And so definitely learned about, you know, family and hard work. And also that there's a lot of things in farming that you can't control. Mm. Right. And so in the eighties, there was a lot of droughts. And, and so those environmental factors really have a significant impact on your ability to be successful. But they're beyond your control. They're completely behind, beyond your control, but it's in hindsight, and I didn't realize at the time, I think what I was so impressed by was my parents wanted it to be within their control. And that's why they went back to college. That's why they planned ahead, years and years ahead, before I even realized it, to move us off the farm, right? So that more, more of our life would be within our control. Yeah, it sounds, so they were, they were, getting tired of the uncertainty that came with it and they wanted some more 
certainty or stability and they took actions towards getting that. Absolutely. And you saw that as a young age. What, what does that do for, how do you think that that's changed some of your career decisions? So, I mean, you, you went through this experience that we talked about. So do, I you guys am, have kids or? Yeah. Yeah. We have, so we have five, five kids. I am one family is first for everything. And, and try to try to live that every day and and make sure that my kids know and and feel how important it is i would also say it has made me a unbelievable planner i plan out everything mm-hmm. probably to the detriment of my my family actually yeah. are you a list maker <laughs> i'm a list maker i'm yeah. a menu planner for the week i i schedule yes you you meal prep yes i meal prep but i i actually have a printed calendar for the week so everybody knows what what meal will be cooked for every <laughs> every single meal and then if something needs to be thought out what day it needs to be thought out what the grocery list is that goes with it yes so and are you a journaler also <laughs> yes you are yeah absolutely okay what's your process like so do you have a morning routine I also do. i do yeah i mine's pretty down to the minute so is it? I get okay. up at 520 okay. every morning. 520. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. All right. 520. 520. I am out of the house by 545 to the gym. Okay. Underground athlete. Okay. A, so cross training. Yes. Well, they wouldn't say lifting, let's okay. say. Right. And, and high impact inter- interval training. So do that from six to seven and then I am home. And before I go out of that house at 545, I make my son's breakfast. Right. And so how old is your son? You have five up. Well, you have five yeah, kids. So the youngest one, there's only one at home still. Um, the youngest one just turned 12 yesterday. Okay. And so, but, but that's kind of my, he's old enough to make his own breakfast, but that's, that's, your thing? that's my thing. I did do that for him. Right. Okay. And then I'm at work by eight. And so, all right. So you go, you work out from, from what? Six to seven. Yep. You showering at the gym. No, come home. You come home, you shower. Do you, do you have a, so you, when, when do you do your journaling? When do you do your... That's a nighttime thing Okay. for me. So I have probably almost as rigorous nighttime um, schedule that I kind of stick to. And I usually go upstairs, read, journal. And for me, journaling is really about reflecting on whatever has happened during the day, during the week, what's on my mind, right? Thinking through whatever is, whatever those events were. Sometimes it's professional right? Sometimes it's yeah. personal. It just depends. What time does that start? I always, I go upstairs at 8.30, journaling starts at 9. Do you, do you manage screen time? Like, do you turn off TVs and, and, and phones at a certain time for a certain amount of time before you go to sleep? Are you dialed in that way? I will say I try not to get on my phone, but it's not, but sometimes it's just not reasonable yeah. to, to, to not check, but I to not not look at the phone within an hour or a screen within an hour before I go to sleep. What about prayer and meditation? Are you in anything like that? Yeah. So I've tried meditating and quite a bit. So there's a great app headspace I've used, right. That I love. And so I, I don't do that every day. It's more of a, for me, it's a 
when I'm feeling stressed or feeling like I need to control something, I will, I'll turn it on and I'll do, you know, a few minutes here or there. So that's your, that's your barometer when you feel like you need to control something. That's interesting that you said that. And that was what, where did you learn that or what brought that lesson to you? That actually was relatively recent. And our coach at the, at the gym is the one that recommended uh, that I check in the headspace because I am fascinated with stress management and, Mm -hmm. and there's a great book right now I'm reading burnout and I, and I have, my next one is, uh, Oh, why zebras don't get ulcers. Have you read that? No, but yeah. (laughs) And so it's all been part of, I'll say kind of my habit building of, Hey, what do I need to do to, to manage my own stress? Yeah. I want to dig into some, that's why I'm glad we're talking about this for you to be, a leader period, but especially in a role that you're in, you've got to, I think what I've been learning is that you have to consciously make efforts to manage yourself, right? So that you can show us the self, not the self that's inside of Angie, right? To, to show up as the person that, that you want to be for your team, right? But, and then you have your family, it, there has to be a balance and, and it is doable because people are doing it, but it, it takes some intentionality and it sounds like you have that, but I want to dig into where you learn that, who you're practicing it from, why it's valuable to you. It's intimidating to hear that you do that much planning. Where, where did you learn that from? Was that something you learned from your parents? Your, your mom's a teacher. She's got to have a lesson plan. Did you see uh, her doing that? Oh, Is that yeah. where you got that from? Or? Absolutely. My, yeah. my mom, my mom and sister, we are all obsessive list makers, right? And yeah. planners. What does it do? Why do you, what's the value in that for you? What is it doing for you to, to be that so, way? There is definitely a sense of control and, and for me kind of thinking through what to expect, mm-hmm. whether it's what to expect within the day, what's to expect within the week, what's to expect within the year that allows me to not only get a sense of control, but also get a sense of goals, right? So what time goes by so fast, right? And so how can we be very intentional about how we use that time and get to achieve and accomplish what we want to accomplish? And so I'll just tell you a funny story with my sister. I was on the phone with her this morning after I got out of the gym. She was wrapping her five Christmas presents because every morning that's what she does. And so she can have all of her stuff done right before, before Thanksgiving, right? All of her Christmas shopping. Right. Before Thanksgiving? Oh, Yes. Do you guys have a competition about that or something? No, but that is, that's oh. just the way we, that's the, that's the way we, my mom and was raised us and we, we, we plan, we plan out our days, we plan out the weeks, we plan our vacations. Do you think that's because down. she's a teacher? I, I feel, I, I, I think I'm keying in on that, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's because your dad was a farmer. Or I, think, I think it's a probably a little bit because she was a teacher. I think I definitely saw her do, right, do her bulletin boards, right? And planning for the school year and her lesson plans. I think it's a little bit about for her also driving expectations for the family, right? Of what, what needs to happen because she was, she was going to school, right? We were farming and she had kids at home. And so I remember at a very young age, right? She'd make out a menu of the week. We'd all be assigned a night that we had to cook. So that, that's, gotten ingrained in you and not just you your sister right so that's part of the environment so you got that from your parents from your mom yeah absolutely 
And I, I heard you say, so it, it puts some stability or some control or some certainty. Is that because your days, especially in a position that you're in, is relatively uncertain? You don't know exactly how it's going to go. So you try to have as much of a framework to work within as you can. Yeah, I think there's some of that. I think the other part of it was, so right when you are on a farm is my dad and my grandpa, they'd be out in the fields till late. And it was always really important for us that we all ate together. Mm -hmm. And so it took too much time for him to come in right from the fields, wherever he was at to eat. So we always would pack up our And it was a hot meal, right? Because they'd been working all day. And so we would take our hot meal out to the, to the fields, right? And be able to eat. And so, and we, we didn't live close to a grocery store, right? So there's a lot of things that you had to plan and prepare to make that happen, right? Mm -hmm. To create that, that family moment that we, every day we had supper together, no matter what field he was in, no matter what he was doing. And it would be a hot meal. It might be eaten off the you know, hood of the pickup truck, but we, we were together and that was what was important. You still doing that today with your family? We do. We do. And especially with my global job now, I try to between six and seven (laughs) every day is a meal time. And so we have meals together and then, then I'm on with Australia and Asia and and because you have other time zones that you have to be responsible for it also. So you're, your days kind of spread out. And so, all right, you mentioned that every time you feel like you need to control something is when you lean towards your Headspace app or you try to take a moment out, but you're setting up the list to create control. So how do you know, where's the line? Like, how do you balance that? How do you know when you're doing too much to try to control something too much versus setting yourself up for success by just having a plan? You're just saying have a plan to do stuff, right? Because you grew up in an environment where you had to plan that was the only way it was going to happen because yeah. there was other thing, things you couldn't control that you, you'd never be able to control it, but they're not a reason to not do it. Absolutely. And that's just kind of how life is. And, and, and you've been successful doing that. I, I get where you're going, but how do you know the line when it's, you know, Angie's doing too much versus just preparing herself? So I would say I probably do too much on a regular basis, but but I have a couple of guideposts to try to make sure that I don't go over, right? So some things that are are non-negotiables for me, right? So working out, non-negotiable, yeah. right? I absolutely have to do that. It makes me feel so much different and better the rest of the day. Is that seven days a week? Are you up at 520, seven days a week? And yeah, usually on the weekend, maybe it'll be six. Okay, but you're, right, you're so doing that workout in. in the morning. Like it's yes. happening. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. 100%. And so, and then- Meal, if I'm not on travel, right? Mealtime with my family, mm-hmm. right? Is the other. And those are kind of good, I'll say good conditions or good guideposts for me to make sure. I do like control, but it is a plan, right? And I, I don't obsess if, if we get off track, right? I am definitely, I give myself grace and I am kind relative to, you know what? We have to order pizza tonight because everything just didn't yeah. happen the way it was supposed to. Or, you know what? We are going to end up having a a a shortened workout, right? Because I have to get to this to this mm-hmm. meeting, right? So there there are different and it's exceptions, but then I get right back on the next day, right? For me, it's about, you know what? Think there can be hiccups, there can be changes, but it's that it's that 
attempt at practice every single day, right? Yeah. Attempt at making sure that the habit habit becomes absolutely just ingrained in part of, of who you are. But I, I meditate when I do feel like I've either overcommitted, which happens, or I have so much stuff going on that I really need to think through all right, what's the most important, right? How do I prioritize? And that's one thing that I'm trying to master is how do I really nail down the most important things that I have to accomplish or that I need to prioritize above anything else? And, and for me, taking five minutes, 10 minutes, step back and kind of regroup is, is critical yeah. for me to get that, get that clarity. And sometimes it's just getting out of our own head. Yeah, right? absolutely. You know, I, I could think about something all day long and by the time it's time for me to take the action towards it, I'm exhausted because I feel like I've been dealing with this all day when I haven't done anything to it. Right. right. But it's like even if I call another person or just take a step out, take a take a step back and let them tell me something about them and it just gets me out of my head. And then whatever I assume is a problem is no longer as, as heavy or as big as I, I thought it was. So gratitude lists, is that something that you do? So sometimes, right? So my my journaling is a little all over the place, right? So yeah. sometimes it would be a list of things I'm grateful for that day. Sometimes like the thing I'm doing right now is, and I haven't actually shared them with any or sent them, but letters to like my aunts who have been, you know, critical role models for me and and just writing them a letter about how grateful I am and different experiences and memories that made it made an impact on me and, and made a difference. And, and just writing those, writing those letters, whether or not I send them, I probably will, but we'll see. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's drawing even like, you know, we'll see doodles in my, in my journals, but it, it really is about trying to reflect on whatever is going on. And, and I, genuinely try to think about what I could learn from it and and what I would have done maybe differently mm-hmm. or could have improved on or my big question right now is what could I have done to make this more impactful day and you ask yourself that question at the end of each day absolutely I want to ask you about I am statements too because I, I found that I am is the most important sentence in the English mm-hmm. language right because anything that we put in after that is how we identify ourselves and so earlier you were sharing is how, how you've, you've learned to, you're creating the habit. You want that, you want the brain to get associated with every morning at a certain time you're doing a certain thing, you're going to the gym and it's not about how long you're there every time. And the I am statements kind of come into play there because the internal voice, right? Angie's internal voice. It sounds exactly like her. And I would assume if you're like most human beings, it's going to be sometimes overly critical. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, how do you talk to yourself internally and how do you manage that with either I am statements or because how did you get to a point where you learn not to critic? Because I like most people from time to time, if I don't do something the way that I set out to do, I can be really internally like kind of grind on myself, be hateful and be like, oh, you messed up again. Are you supposed to be working out for an hour? This is why you're so fat. Like, you know, or like whatever. Right. right. I can go all day oh, with absolutely this. Right. I know. Examples are most like, people can. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you're supposed to wake up at 520. It's 525. You're late. Like, this is the problem. This is why you're never going to get anywhere. And I start remembering all the things I've done wrong mm-hmm. that no one else knows about that. For some reason, it seems like I can self-deprecate myself into better behavior. It's never worked before, but it feels like doing something about it. And you've learned 
that that's not something that's necessary or helpful? Like, where'd you learn that lesson? And what is your internal talk, your I am statements? What does that sound like? Yeah, so I... I am definitely my biggest critic, right? But I also learned in my career to also be my biggest cheerleader, Mm. which really balances and offsets that voice. And so soon after I had worked uh, for that president and had went back and was managing a site in Illinois, I was was the most senior person there. I was one of the only female site leads for a defense company in the area. And so everybody kept thinking I was like the head of the admins or um, an office manager. They didn't realize what my role was. Because you're a woman? Yeah. And so I, I was really struggling with the role. And like there was jokes, right, about painting the walls pink and hanging up curtains. And, you know, and I, I was using my mentor at the time as a way to re-energize myself, right? Did, did that stuff make you more angry or more sad? Or somewhere in the middle? Somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Frustrated, angry, determined, Yeah. right? To prove them wrong, right? There were so many different things. But I also felt very lonely because I was, you know, at the site and the most senior person and, and I didn't have anybody to necessarily relate to. So I found I was, I was spending all my mentoring sessions kind of dumping. Yeah. Right. More like a therapy session. Yeah. And And this is a guy that you're talking to. Yes. Yeah. And he, and he was great the first couple times and then he got tired of it and he did a fantastic thing. I felt horrible at first, but in hindsight, it was a fantastic thing. He told me, he said, I need you to call these three people. He gave me three names, the three people to call. And he said, and I am not going to talk to you again until you have a plan of how you're going to manage your own morale. And he hung up on me. (laughs) And I was like, I knew I had like messed up, right? I had done something horribly wrong. So I did what he said. I called the three people. They were also site leads at other small sites across Lockheed Martin, right? And really talked through them. And then it was a few months later because I was a little scared to call him back, right? I wanted to make sure I had a really good plan. And so I went back to him with a plan of how I was going to manage my own morale. And and that stuck with me, right? The idea that you you can't you can't suck energy from other people, right? When you're a leader, you're actually supposed to be the one that is giving energy. Right. And that that can be incredibly motivating to the team if you get that right. And so I'll be honest, I think that helped tremendously my inside voice. Right. That self-critic to to temper it, to say, look, what's your plan? All right. So you missed the gym today or the scale says, you know, you put on five pounds. What's your plan? What are you going to do? All right, we start over tomorrow. Same habit. We're going to do it. This time, I'm going to do it 10 days in a row. This time, I'm going to do 100 days in a row. This time, I'm going to do it, right? And, and so it's, it's taking that critic and trying to make it into something constructive that you can take action on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, you know, there's a saying, find someone who has what you want and do what they do. You know, or, you know, if, if you don't want what you have, look at what you're doing. Right. You know, that that kind of thing. And I, I think what he what he did there was he gave you people that were in the position that you were in to go talk to to get their direct experience and advice 
to share your experience of what's going on with you to get from them how they had to deal with it. Absolutely. Yeah. He gave me a network, right, of, of shared experiences that I could pull from. Mm -hmm. Do you think that you would have not been, would you have received it differently if he said, here's what I'm doing and here's the people I want you to call? Or do you think the way he did it was the way you needed it? Because it's the same way that other mentor of yours in the past said, hey, you're an idiot. You better take this job. No, he, it was very impactful the way he ended up saying it to me. Yeah. Right? But like and you memorable. as an individual, like. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm just having a conversation with you now and I've keyed in on two people doing the same thing twice that seemed to work really well for you. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But that, I mean, I guess, but even with that doesn't mean that that's how everyone would learn. But that is how, how, how you got it. Has that, what does that do for you when you're mentoring other people now? Like how, what kind of advice are you giving them based on that experience? Cause there, like no one person is going to fill all our gaps. So you oh, gotta have yeah. more than one mentor. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, mentoring other people, helping other people. I learned so much more from the people that I help with something that I may know how to do than, than I think that they ever learned from me. How does that change your relationships that you have now? And what's that look like in terms of like people that you mentor internally or just in general in life? Yeah. So, so I, I, I use that example. I usually share, I usually, one of the things I do with most of my mentees is talk through my good and bad mentoring experiences, you know, right. To, to help them say, look, what do you want out of Right. What do you want out of this relationship? What do you want out of why me for your mentor? Right. Like you said, you can have lots of different people, but what is it that you think you want to get out of this? And to be able to have that conversation and also to set the expectations of, look, some of my best learnings were from mentors and it was a painful experience. It was not not enjoyable. And if you really want to learn, right, I can be really direct. I can be very honest, but sometimes it may not be something that you really want to hear or that you even like, but you need to understand that if I'm going to commit to investing this time, then I'm going to commit to being honest with you and absolutely making, helping make them the best version of themselves. Yeah. Isn't that crazy how sometimes we can ask for help and then we don't want the help when it's given or like, we're just like, no, I didn't want you to do it that way. Right. Exactly. You know? like, exactly. Even, Hey, proofread this email for me. And then they give it back with markups. It's like, you know, it's almost like this feeling of like, I can't believe they've changed right. all that. I, no, I really just wanted validation. I didn't right. want, right. When we ask for help, it's almost like we just want you to tell us everything about us is awesome and that we don't actually need the help. And like, Oh wow. I kind of knew that. Thank you. That is. Right. But that's, but you're, you're being clear like, Hey, like not everything I, I may hurt your feelings, but I'm not doing it to be mean. Um, in fact, so that hurting the feelings, like that's something that I think as a leader, we all have to kind of get over. And, and people say develop a thick skin, but it, I think that goes to vulnerability, being able to put ourselves in vulnerable positions, receive the help when it's given to us, knowing that like our pride, this idea of ego is not our amigo. Our ego can be bruised a little bit because there's that flash of almost like an embarrassment feeling when someone's critiquing something you're doing, but they're doing it because you asked them to do it and everything they're telling you is going to make you better. And the second time you do that won't be as bad as the first. And you get into this habit of doing it, which sounds like you're training your, your, your brain and sort of like just getting in the habit of doing things. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So I just, I just read the book Atomic Habits. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. for James sure Clear? I am. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's fantastic. James Clear. You know, that's a big, so he talks about something and there's another guy who's Darren Hardy 
they both talk about the compound effect mm-hmm. and that's kind of just doing it repetitively. And one of the things that we talk about with this podcast, that's why I take cold showers. I never want to do it. It's never a great idea. I know I say this on almost every episode, but like, you know, but I learn a lot because the water's never as cold as I think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. It never hurts in a way that I think it's going to be. And it's, I did something that I didn't want to do and the opposite of what I thought was a good idea that is well outside of my comfort zone. But I did it anyway, and I do it every day. I do it every day because at some point throughout the day, something's going to come up that I don't want to do that is outside of my comfort zone that I think is going to be this horrible experience that's going to go really bad, and it usually isn't. Right. And you're in a position like yours. You're constantly pretty much pitching business on behalf of, like, Microsoft. We need to get into this new sector. We need to do this. We need to go after that business. Was that just repetition, or did you go somewhere to learn how to do this? Like, how do you get good at that? So... I will tell you for me, great experience, right? Great mentors, right? Watching what works, what doesn't work, right? For my peers, I've had the great fortune of, of, of running lots of different types of businesses, right? So running a commercial cybersecurity business within Lockheed Martin, running the enterprise information technology within Lockheed, running the civil business, and now at Microsoft. And, and, I, I know what my strengths are, right? I, I really, I think one of the things I'm really good at is helping build, build teams and orchestrate impact, right? Orchestrate whatever that effect is from a business perspective. I also know that I'm a pretty good listener when it comes to specifically customers, but also my teams and and I recognized very early on, I will never, ever be the smartest person in the room, right? But I have an incredible sense of right and wrong, of what the right next steps are or what the wrong next steps are. I have an unbelievable ability to manage risk and opportunities in a way that absolutely delivers results. And so being able to run a business and constantly draw on those strengths I have found have been a fantastic way to deliver business results for no matter no matter what company I was operating mm-hmm. under. And I've had the great fortune of working for leaders that I always I always thought it was really important to choose who I worked for, right? And and specifically is that leader someone I can learn from. And and so picking who you work for is really really important on your success because one they're going to help you grow they also will if you pick the right person they'll have your back right and when you do mess up because you will Mm -hmm. and and they will also give you that candid feedback and you know if you're working for somebody that's not then that means they're probably not working hard enough to give you the feedback you need so you're you're bringing up something that I don't think I knew until maybe recently is that we have a lot more autonomy on the jobs we take, especially, well, I I'd say now more than ever in the technology industry because of, I mean, they're calling it the great resignation, but just the war on talent is a real thing. And that, and that people that are technologists in particular and, and, and other people too, anyone listening, like we have a lot more control over, what our career looks like than we may think. Sometimes it feels like we just got to take the job that's offered to us because somebody wants us. 
Right. You know, they picked me. Yeah. Out of all these people, what are some of the things that people can do to, to even find that out? Is this a person I want to learn from, work from? Are they the right mentor for me? Is this the right position for me to spend a couple of years learning from this person? Yeah. So, so one is when you're going through the interview process, right? So if it's an external company, it's an interview both directions and you need to treat it that way. So you need to ask about their experiences, right? What do they do to support their employees, right? What's the best mentoring experience they ever had, right? You can ask those questions. And I've been through so many interviews where you, the, you can just tell, right? The people are, they're just so drained from having to answer questions that they lose the will to ask one, right? Or yeah. they ask one that is very tactical. And that's a missed opportunity, right? To be able to really find out who is this person that I, quite honestly, I'm getting ready to put my career in their hands in some respects and my personal growth because it could be limited by that person or it could be exponential growth, right? Because of that person. And so. Well, you have both of those experiences, right? Absolutely. You had one person saying, hey, you're probably great at it, but I'm not, I mean, I just feel like I don't want to do this. And, <laughs> you know, and, and if you, if that was, if, if you didn't do the things you did, you would have been limited by that person. Yeah. And absolutely. then you have other people that, you know, actually the next boss looking up that gave you the tools indirectly mm-hmm. to do all the things that you're doing now. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think it could be decision fatigue too, like in the interview process, like, can people say, look, I don't want to meet more than one person in a day when I interview yeah. with you yeah, absolutely. because I, I want to be able to learn as much as I can from you? Yeah, you can absolutely do that. I will tell you, I, I asked about my, my current boss, Julie Glidden, who's fantastic, right? So besides the interview, I went and asked about people that had worked with her previously. In every interview that I had with people in Microsoft, I, I said, Describe to me what Julia's leadership style is, right? Mm. Give me your last experience in the meeting you had with her last, right? Asking questions because I I wanted to make sure that I was working for a person that I could learn from and and that was the person that I thought she was when I spoke to her on the interview. And I'm very fortunate because she's, she's absolutely fantastic. Well, I feel like we learned a lot about you today. <laughs> I want to get to the question. I think I... I did this thing. I sort of answered it for you almost, but the jumping off point, uh, a moment in time where, and, and it's described in two different ways, actually a moment in time where you can no longer keep doing what you're doing, but you may be uncertain about what to do next. So it's an inflection point. You have to do something and this doesn't have to be career wise. This could be in your personal life or, you know, some people have described it as a time period where at the time they thought it was something really bad they viewed it as a negative experience and they didn't want it to be happening. It was painful either physically or emotionally or both. And, and now they look back and they're just incredibly grateful that they wouldn't be either the person they are or be in the position that they're in or have the relationships in their life that they have or know the things that they know without that experience that at the time was so painful. Yeah. So, you know, I, I ended up leaving Lighthouse about 2019, right? So I took 18 months off before I decided to join Microsoft. And that was definitely a, that was a definitely, I would say, a jumping off point, right? There was a thousand reasons why 
I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. And I really wanted to get clarity about, about who I am, where my family's at, before I decided what I wanted to do next. And I had, I've had this amazing career already, but at the time I was working at Lidos, I was 45, I was running an organization of almost 4 billion a year, 10,000 people reporting to me, and everyone tells you that your career is a marathon, right? And you, it's a journey and you have to enjoy it and everything else. I can tell you that seven years up to that point, and, and even probably prior to that, I definitely was not treating my career like any sort of marathon, right? It was a sprint. Over the course of seven years, so from 2012 to 2019, I went from running a team of 800 to 10,000. It's a lot. It's a, and over the seven years, right? So you think of all the, and in that was a merger and acquisition, right? We got sold off from Lockheed Martin oh. and merged into Lidos. I had... Between those seven years, I had one, two, three different jobs, right? Different roles as far as business, businesses I like ran. Like Had traveled the globe. I mean, I just really a fantastic, right? Experience and career. It was going so fast. And I really wanted to be deliberate about what I was going to do next. make your list. I do. I have to make my plan. And... I decided to take a break and and really step back, think through what I wanted to do. I, I still have a lot of runway, right? I, I still plan on working for a long time and wanted to think through what I wanted to do next. I wanted to search for that 20% of doors that I didn't even know was open. Yeah. So how did you... How did you work through that that decision? I mean, you, your kids are, you've got the 12-year-old at home. Well, he wasn't 12, but your other kids are older, so they're out of the house? Well, I had, at the time, I had another son home who just, he just went to college this past fall. So that was the other thing that was weighing on me, right, yeah. is I only had him at home for another year and a half, right, before he's off to college, and... and I was gone a lot. Yeah, with you traveling, had you been able to spend a lot of time... Yeah, I think I think that my kids hopefully would tell you that the time I spend with them is always high quality time. Yeah. Right. I'm present. I'm with them. And and we do fantastic things together. But it's it's a demand of the jobs. Right. That I've had is that I am gone. Right. Sometimes sometimes I'm gone a lot. Yeah. And and I really I really was kind of second guessing, okay, how much time am I spending away versus here? And, and what does that look like? And, and so, like I said, there was a thousand things going on in my mind that I needed to, I needed to get some distance so I could think through what I wanted the rest of my, not only career, but my life to look like. Yeah. Did you make a list when you were doing this too? I did. Okay. I, I, I journaled about it. I made lists. How long did it take? So how long did it take you to make the decision? It took a long time. Once you, like how, like months, weeks? So yeah, months. Yeah. Yeah. And my husband thought I was absolutely nuts, to really? be honest, right? He was not, I think he may have, may have said the word midlife crisis at some point, but, <laughs> but he, he actually won. He's always unbelievably supportive, but he, he came around and understood and then, I'll be honest, after I was off, he was like, I totally get it. Yeah. I, I totally, I, he totally understood 
I I needed to get off that that treadmill for a little while. What was different about you emotionally during that eighteen months? Like, what did you leave behind? Like, what did you let go of? Oh, were there things? I mean, or were there things weighing on you that you didn't even know until it was gone? Yeah, there was so there there was a lot, right? So I I didn't make my list, so I still got up at five twenty. Ever well, actually, at that time I was getting up at four thirty. So and going to the gym between five and six. So at that time, for the first four months I was off, I still got up at four thirty and went to the gym because I had read enough books that said, you know, a lot of people that make this decision where they take this pause, that they'll go into this funk and they'll get depressed and everything else. And so I didn't want that to happen. And so I stayed, I had a schedule on that I stuck with for that time period until COVID hit. And then that kind of threw everything a little bit for a whack. But by that time I was already in a, in a good place, but he could see the, the stress kind of coming off of me and, and, as well as me really thinking through what I wanted to do and, and quite honestly make the decisions as a family, right? What do we want the rest of our life to look like, right? What does, what does that mean, mean for us? And we had a lot of fantastic discussions as a family about, you know, what we wanted to do. So why go back then? If you, like, if you were in a, sounds like a better place, I, I, I'm still in a great place. I, I think it was just a, I thought long and hard about whether or not I wanted to come back, right? Or, or what I wanted to do next. Yeah, like why go back to the same thing that like, yeah, you I couldn't have known it would be any different from what, I mean, like the industry is the industry, right? Yeah, but I, I love, I love the industry. I yeah. think that's the other thing that knowing after I left is I find a passion and a energy from capabilities that help defend and protect nations. I mean, yeah. And that's a huge mission that I feel really connected with. And I realized I wasn't done, right? Maybe I had been tired. Maybe I was, you know, lots of other things, right? But I wasn't done. And I, I wanted to make an impact in a slightly different way. And, and I chose Microsoft because I, I felt like I had a fantastic fit with their culture. I think technology companies have a huge ability to make a difference in policy and and our customers in a way that maybe other some other companies can't. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be able to figure out how to make a bigger impact. Yeah. Well, it's working out. So yes, far. yes, I'm loving it. Yeah, well, listen, I really appreciate you you taking some time to chat with me and I feel like I learned so much from I'm going to make a list for everything I do now. <laughs> you know, I'll send you a list. I want to learn everything you know how to do. So, before I let you go, why 520? <laughs> like what what does this number have to do with anything? I found out is the time that I don't press snooze, right? I never press snooze at 520. I am I'm awake and I just I get up. So, all right. Okay. I used to have it at 5:15. I had it at 5:30 for a little bit, and it works for me. And 5:20 is it's a perfect amount of time. It's time for me to be able to I can make my iced coffee, I can make my son's breakfast, I can get dressed and be out the door. Yeah. No hiccups. Okay. So there's no extra time to hesitate in between the next thing. There's none. There's that's, no thinking, right? right. It's just I have specific, my routine. Yes. Right. Exactly. You've got 25 minutes to make all this happen and then we're out the door. Mm-hmm. All right. Don't second guess yourself. 520. I'm going to set that clock today. That's right. All right. 
Thank you. Thanks for listening to DC Local Leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC Local Leaders, on Instagram at DC Local Leaders, or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.